Welcome to Mission Critical, sale leaseback podcast by Ascension, the world's number one sale leaseback show. We share the latest in sale leaseback advice from the best in the game to keep you at the cutting edge of the hottest emerging practices in corporate real estate. I'm your host, Tom Johnson. We talk to sale back. Yeah. You ready? All right. Good afternoon. Uh, this is Mission Critical, a podcast by Ascension. I'm Tom Johnson, and thank you for joining us today. Today, I'm here with Dalton Potts. Dalton is a principal at NRD Capital, an experienced private equity firm that, among other things, invests in and operates some of the world's largest restaurants and QSR brands. Prior to that, Dalton worked in investment banking with Green Hill and Company. Dalton, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tom. Great to be with you this afternoon. Thank you. And we may have met about two months ago at the Ascension launch party, right? Absolutely. Yes, it was a great time. Beautiful awesome. out there. So you're out in uh, you're out in Dallas, and so like me, I'm in Scottsdale. You had to trek all the way out to New York and then do that arduous drive to Montauk. Yes, it took a little longer than we thought, but uh, was well worth it. I can see why they call it the end of the world out there. Yeah, for sure, makes sense. Awesome. So. To kick things off, why don't you share a little bit about the company that you're involved with, NRD Capital? Yeah, sure. Uh, NRD Capital is a consumer and retail-focused uh, private equity fund. We focus mainly on restaurants, franchising, and consumer services. Um, a lot of our deals historically have been restaurant brands, but we really do think of ourselves as a franchising fund, and uh, franchising is in our DNA um, our managing partner, Aziz, actually started with one Kentucky Fried Chicken in Atlanta and grew that to be one of the larger franchisees in the U.S. and saw some of the franchisor, franchisee economics get out of whack and decided to sell out of a lot of his holdings and, you know, wanted to do franchising right. And so that was his thesis um, when he started the fund. Very cool. So. You know, in researching about NRD and looking at your guys' website, I, I'm really curious to know. I think it's actually interesting. It looks like, you know, aside from going in and helping some franchisees or businesses that, you know, look, they have a great name, they have a great concept and helping them just improve the overall business. You guys have really kind of implemented through some other investments, some technology, right? There's some technology platforms, some apps, whatever it may be that help your operators really increase their efficiencies and, and improve operations. I'd love to kind of hear the tie-in because I think a lot of private equity firms are like, hey, let's just go find an owner operator, a business, a manufacturer, whatever it may be. We're going to get the bottom line up. We're going to help them with some efficiency. But you've really tied in a lot of new technology. And I think what is interesting for me in, in being the CEO of Ascension is we're big believers in having a great tech stack and how that has really helped us. So I'd, I'd love to hear kind of some more detail. And then I think we'll hop into some of the examples too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that sounds great. So, you know, we may on the tech side, we may not have a great understanding of the underlying architecture, the tech that drives it. But, you know, one of the unique things about NRD and how many individual locations we control. And then if you look through a lot of our largest LPs are also other high net worth franchisees. I think the last time we looked across NRD and its underlying investors, we have something like 5,000 doors or so that we can control. And so, 
if we look at restaurants and they've always been historically slow to adopt technology and we're seeing a lot of the parallels right now in the restaurant industry that the hospitality and hotels actually went through and historically restaurants are probably about a decade behind the technology adoption of the hotels and we said okay what are all the different line items on the restaurant PL? let's make one or two bets to each of those line items the places that we know can boost underlying unit level economics and you know before we make any investment on the tech side we actually oftentimes demo it in our portfolio so before we're actually putting dollars behind it we know exactly what the unit level economics look like and what the payback period looks like to the operator. So we know that there's a real ROI there that, you know, people are going to be excited to implement across their portfolios and across their restaurants or, you know, retail businesses. So you guys are somewhat unique in that you're a traditional private equity firm investing in existing businesses, but also have kind of a venture capitalist type fund or arm as well, correct? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And you know, a lot of times the venture bets we're making aren't really big in terms of the dollar amount. It's less than 10% of our fund. But like I said, because any investment we're making, we feel really good about the ROI. We feel like we can really get some outsized returns and juice the fund level returns via those technology investments. And, you know, I think when you look at a lot of traditional venture investments, it's more binary return. Given um, the level of diligence we've done, our tech portfolio has actually performed incredibly well, even through COVID, even though we aren't, you know, quote unquote, technology guys. Yeah, I like that. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, saying we may not have a big dollar volume in that particular technology, but we're tremendously invested in it because we're implementing it throughout our businesses, throughout all the various franchises. So in one way or another, you actually do have a tremendous dollar volume invested in it, but you're getting the greater return where you know, you guys have the most expertise, which is owning and operating all these businesses. Yeah, that's right. And not only are we sharing, you know, in the upside of all those technology businesses, but they're improving our underlying unit level economics for all the operating businesses that we own and where we do put big dollar amounts. So let's talk about some of those businesses. I'm out in Scottsdale. We have one of our satellite offices for Ascension. Out in this office, we have a team of some agents that are working on really the family founder owned business. And I mentioned to them today, a couple of young gentlemen that just recently graduated from ASU. And I mentioned to them today that I was talking to you, NRD Capital, and I mentioned, yeah, they're involved with Fuzzy's Tacos concept. And they were stoked. They're like, Fuzzy's. We love that place. It's a big staple down on Mill Avenue, South Mill Avenue in Tempe. So love to hear about Fuzzies. I think you've had that tied into, I'm looking at my notes here with a uh, experiential branch, which is like a platform that you're trying to build off. Tell me about Fuzzies experiential and then let's hop into some of the other success stories that you guys have had. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Fuzzies is a Tex-Mex franchisor. We currently have about 140 units. When we originally bought it, it had 75 units, probably 40 of which were in the greater DFW area. Um, And you know, when you look at NRD's thesis too, we are very good at taking more regional brands and turning them into super regional brands and then probably letting the next guy truly taking it national. And so we've really expanded it out of just the Southwest. And, you know, some of our best markets are in uh, middle America now. Fuzzy's just has a fantastic value proposition. And I actually have a personal tie to the brand 
And it's funny how things come full circle. When I got my first job offer at the University of Texas down in Austin to celebrate, I actually went to Fuzzy's and had a big margarita right after. You know, the food is really great. There's a really nice Baja style atmosphere and the food is really priced appropriately. And so, you know, especially as inflation continues to impact our business, I think you're seeing a lot of consumers trade down into Fuzzy's and, you know, really giving us credit for having that great value proposition for our consumers. That's very cool. And I think expanding, you know, a concept like that on a national platform is something that, you know, especially with the taco cuisine, it's something that's good quality Mexican food. That cuisine I think is missing in a lot of middle America. I, my family's from the South, from Tennessee, Kentucky. I would go there, you know, all my life growing up with my mom. And there was never really that traditional good Mexican food taco concept. And so I think that's a market that, well, yeah, the Chipotle's of the world are getting out there. There's still something of like the fuzzies with the higher quality, but there's a market you guys are going to be able to capture. And then you add in the tech stack that you guys are building upon. It's, it's something to, to be very excited about. Yeah, absolutely. That's been a good investment for us. And, you know, can't speak highly enough about the founder, um, Mel Knight there. And, uh, you know, he elected to retire um, going through COVID. Obviously, going through uh, COVID with the restaurant chain is always tough. And so we decided to morph the investment into experiential brands, brought on uh, Paul D'Amico, who's an experienced uh, restaurant executive who had been uh, the president of Focus Brands um, and also ran NAFNAF, uh, Global Franchise Group. And so the idea there has been to acquire other uh, high growth um, franchisors and focus on you know, other fast growing segments um, in the center of the plate. So we have Fuzzies and Tex-Mex and you know, looking at whether that be some Asian concepts, breakfast concepts and the like. Very cool. And then bringing in the you know, experienced gentlemen to help operate experiential brands, to help operate Fuzzies, it's a kind of a similar story to one of your other concepts, which actually resonates with me, which is altitude. And you guys recently also brought in a very experienced operator or as your CEO you used to work with, I believe, edible arrangements. I got three little kids, two-year-old, three-year-old, five-year-old. I live right near a trampoline park in Scottsdale. And on many Fridays, I'm going there with the kids. It's a great way for them to get out energy. But it's also, you know, in the Texas climate, in the Arizona climate, it's really hot for six months out of the year. And so some of these indoor trampoline parks are some of the only big, large spaces you can go to. But I'd love to hear more about like altitude, how you guys have grown that and where you see that going. Like, I think like I read, you're up to 70 locations already. Yeah, that's right. So, um, you know, it was about 75 when we bought it. We'll open our 90th this year, you know, have a really strong pipeline there as well. So, you know, feel strong, we'll get to 100, 120 units um, within the next year. Uh, you mentioned Mike Rotundo, our CEO. He's an incredible operator, formerly both with Edible Arrangements and Tropical Smoothie, which is obviously um, a best-in-class concept. You know, at Altitude, we really go after the younger kid. When you look at, you know, the trampoline park industry as a whole, it's trended towards more expensive build-outs, fancier attractions. And we've said, hey, let's keep our cost open low. 
Let's go after the smaller kids and really focus on uh, active entertainment. So, you know, the parents can go relax a little bit and know that your kid, not only is he going to have a lot of fun, but he's also going to burn a lot of calories and, um, you know, stay healthy. Let me yeah. go home and have my wine at night and relax because the kids are in bed by seven. I, I know that. I live that life. Yeah. And, and like you said, it can vary a lot depending on climate. So you have... Uh, you know, stores in the Midwest that'll be incredibly busy during the cold months. And then, you know, Texas, Scottsdale will be incredibly busy during the summer months. And, uh, you know, it, it's tough dealing with that seasonality on a unit by unit basis. And so one of the things we, we've done in that business is transition it to more of a membership based model, which really helps kind of smooth out um, the revenue. And that's been a pretty good uh, initiative for us as well. Yeah, the one that I go to in Scottsdale, different concept, they have a third of it is like a skate park. So the kids are on skateboards or the scooters. So then there's that's one of those things that is kind of all seasons for that, you know, certain segment of kids that love to skateboard. Right. So I think that was probably one way they figured, hey, how can we get through the, you know, in Scottsdale, the winter where everybody doesn't want to be inside, they want to be outside. Right. I'm formerly an apartment broker. I was an attorney before that. What I've always known with my apartment investments, I've collected with some partners, a decent sized portfolio in SoCal is that I know apartments, it's what I know and, and I know what I don't know. And so I've always kind of stuck with apartments and never really gotten into anything else. Obviously now with Ascension, I may probably start venturing into stuff. So I look at Altitude and I go, you guys are restaurant guys, great restaurant experience. How did you go, hey, this may not be a restaurant, but like we think we can make this work too? Because that was probably a little bit of a leap of faith, right? Had it been primarily corporate owned, I think it probably would have been a bit of a tougher sell. But, you know, given that it's almost 100% franchise, we said, hey, we know franchising. We can look through to the underlying franchisees here and see the, the type of franchisee they've been able to attract. And, you know, the beauty of franchising done right, if your franchisees are making money and you're able to validate the unit level economics at the franchisor level, you're really just a royalty collector. And so it's a, a pretty simple business. So let's hop into the real estate component um, of these businesses, of these investments. As you know, at Ascension, we're a corporate real estate advisory firm working with private equity firms like yourself, bankers, other strategic advisors and family founder owned businesses. So we're, you know, where we get our hands dirty is executing sale leasebacks, but we also do a tremendous amount of advisory financial services. So at NRD, you guys are reinventing the private equity space, but you're also with these franchises, with technology, but you're also coming across real estate that is owned within these businesses that you guys are purchasing and operating. So how have sale leasebacks, you know, historically for you guys, you know, become a big part of that or become a part of the component? And and, and what have you done as it relates to that? You know, when you think about NRD, absent the uh, tech that we talked about, you know, they're on one hand, you have these real high growth franchisors, which we just talked about fuzzies and altitude. And, you know, on the other hand, we really like looking for hidden value and where we can unlock value. And, you know, where we've found some of that is in kind of micro cap public companies and, you know, Frisha specifically, they're under love. They're a little bit too small. They're usually very thinly traded, but, you know, a lot of times they have very good bones as an operating business and then they still own and control a lot of their real estate. And so you can unlock a lot of that value through sale leasebacks and, you know, the capital can really help you through several different, you know, initiatives. The first of which is just to help you find 
finance that initial transaction. So, you know, a lot of times looking at your capital stack, you may have a sale lease back term loan, which helps reduce your initial equity check, but pretty rare where we sell a lot of it at close. A lot of times you hold some of it back. And then, you know, as you're going through your whole period in investment, you can do additional sale lease backs, you know, to really help the strategic initiatives of the company. And, you know, one of the things that we used um, at Frisch's when we worked with some sale lease backs, instead of having your capital tied up in these locations is taking it out. And we used it to invest in digital menu boards for all of our locations, you know, help improve drive through times. So it's really taking the capital where it's a you know low growth environment and turning it into a, a high growth initiative. And you know, a lot of these times for the underloved is what I'll call them public companies, you're acquiring them at a fairly low multiple, whatever it is. And you know, with the sale leaseback market becoming so competitive and you know, cap rates being where they are, it's allowed you to have a very nice arbitrage on that capital. So, you know, if you're buying the whole business for, you know, five, six, seven X, you can turn around and sell things at a cap rate of six, seven. So you're getting 12, 13 times for them. That's a very nice arbitrage that you're able to take advantage of right off the bat. It's funny listening to you. I don't know if you taught Chelsea that that blurb about the value arbitrage sale leaseback, or she taught you because you guys, you two are like exactly in sync. You mentioned that, you know, sometimes when you NRD, when you're executing sale leasebacks, it's not going to necessarily be on the front end. It might be later on. So like, when does it make sense to not do a sale leaseback, maybe initially and later on, or, or and then taking it a step further, when does it maybe make sense to always hold the real estate if that's a situation, right? Yeah, I think if you don't have a immediate need for the capital, um, you know, there's no need to do a sale leaseback off the bat. And, you know, one of the reasons I think everyone loves real estate is that in the long run, it, it's going to be an appreciating asset. So, you know, maybe you want to hold those on the books and wait till you're closer to exit to, to juice your returns. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And, and I know a lot of operators will say, okay, I've just bought this business. Site level financials are great on three of 10, but the other seven, this is why we're buying the business because of the opportunity. Let's let's get site levels, financials, correct. Let's implement our technology stack, get everything really humming overall and then site level, and then we can execute some later. So you can wait for, uh, you know, unit level improvements, uh, maybe can juice your cap rate again. And then, you know, the other thing why you may not want to do it is it does put a little bit more operating leverage on the business because, you know, rent is a fixed cost. It's usually a decent percentage of sales. And so it, it does uh, add a little bit more risk to the system. But, you know, in our opinion and, and that arbitrage that we talked about, the uh, reward is well worth the risk. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see with now the interest rates going up, cap rates, Obviously, you're going to follow in line is cap rate multiple is, is going to start going down. And where does that arbitrage, where are all these things going to shake out, right? I, you know, I guess I suppose time will tell, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. It's tough to see um, where it will shake out right now. I think, um, you know, the real estate market has uh, stayed resilient overall. It, it's probably slowed down a little bit. But then I think on the operating company right now, you're seeing a real bit ass spread between buyers and sellers where, you know, on the buy side, you're saying, hey, interest rates have gone up a bit, multiples are starting to come down. But then on the seller side, they're pointing to businesses that are very comparable to them and say, but they just got those multiples in, in 2021. And my business is a little better than that. So I should get more of a multiple than that. So I think that's why you're seeing a lot of slowdown. You're seeing it in real estate as well. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of articles out right now 
uh, about, you know, rates go up and it takes six months for the market, six to nine months for the market to kind of catch up where people will realize that, you know, and I think even, even sales that happened three, four months ago on real estate, for a seller to point to that, I mean, there's some validity because a three or four month sale is a comp. However, where were rates just three to four months ago, 150 bips lower and debt was locked in there. So it's challenging times. I, I know just from some of my own personal experience, I've been in the beneficial situation of having sold a couple of apartment buildings that I own with partners literally within the last you know 90 days. And we got some very big prices. And these are in SoCal in LA, for example. And what I can do to kind of equate that over to other business lines um, or businesses is it was really good, well-quality located apartments. And so I think similar to businesses that historically have had our good operations, good names, good locations, whatever that may be, I think some of those businesses you're going to see, at least right now, still holding a lot of value. And then the ones that haven't done as well, this is where the rubber is really going to meet the road. And I think you're going to start seeing some pretty strong depreciation. But look, maybe that's where the opportunity lies for investors like yourself is is, is finding those, right? Yeah, absolutely. If you have the you know, fortitude to go after those and you know, also being creative with where you invest in the capital structure as well, depending on your, your risk tolerance. Very good. So Big picture, what's your guys' outlook for, I guess, Q4 and 2020, your outlook or your plan? Where, where, where do you guys see NRD heading over the next you know, year, year and a half? Yeah, I think we're going to continue to be uh, really cautious um, overall, tough to tell. You know where the market's heading. You know as it pertains to retail specifically. You know we think there's going to be a little bit more pain in the near term. A lot of free money floating around there, and the so-called zombie companies are still uh, up and afloat. And as those guys start to run out of their their cash balances, I think that they're probably going to become a little bit more desperate to to get something done and. And to find a lifeline. But, you know, on the other side of that coin, I think you're going to have trophy assets that, you know, continue to do well. And when a lot of their competitors have to pinch pennies a little bit, they're going to be able to expand and, and land market share. So, you know, I, I think you're going to continue to see a real bifurcation between the haves and the have nots. And, you know, I think specific to kind of consumer and retail too, there hasn't been a ton of stuff trade in like the 10 to 12 times range recently. You know, there's assets that come to market that, um, you know, no one really wants and you may have to scoop them up for, for four or five times. And then there's the really high growth ones that have a very unique product offering category of one. You know, those are going in the high teens. So you're not really seeing anything in between. Yeah, that makes sense. So as we wrap up, a couple of closing questions, and I guess I want to give you guys a plug as well. You've got the NRD Foundation. You've got Tokens for Relief, which is an initiative that's benefiting Ukraine right now. And so I wanted to plug that for NRD Capital. If somebody goes to nrdcapital.com, they'll see a link where they can donate. I think that's something really great. So my final question for you, a little bit out of left field. So who in the world of, let's say, corporate real estate or private equity would you most like to take the lunch? You know, I'd probably say this is going to be a bit of a cop out, but probably Steve Schwartzman at Blackstone. Just admire what he's built so much and, you know, truly best in class. And, you know, when you hear about their IC meetings and, you know, for deals they win, they don't win the, the work they're able to do and go back and look through it. You know, you can see why they're able to outperform and have done it consistently. Very cool. So when I have Steve on the podcast, I'll let him know that you're looking to go to lunch. And uh, we got a little bit of work to do on our end as well, but we'll get yes. going on that. One day. Very cool. 
Dalton, thanks so much. Appreciate you being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you. Mission Critical, a sale leaseback podcast by Ascension. To find out more about Ascension and how we can help you achieve a higher standard of real estate advisory, visit www.higherascension.com. And then make sure to search for Mission Critical in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. We talk to Sally Spag. Yeah, you ready?